This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Heretics by G. K. Chesterton Chapter 17 On the Wit of Whistler that capable and ingenious writer, Mr. Arthur Simons, as included in a book of essays recently published, I believe an apologia for London Nights, in which he says that morality should be wholly subordinated to art in criticism. And he uses the somewhat singular argument that art, or the worship of beauty, is the same in all ages, while morality differs in every period and in every respect. He appears to defy his critics or his readers to mention any permanent feature or quality in ethics. This is surely a very curious example of that extravagant bias against morality which makes so many ultra-modern aesthetes as morbid and fanatical as any Eastern hermit. Unquestionably, it is a very common phrase of modern intellectualism to say that the morality of one age can be entirely different to the morality of another, and, like a great many other phrases of modern intellectualism, it means literally nothing at all. If the two moralities are entirely different, why do you call them both moralities? It is as if a man said, Camels in various places are totally diverse. Some have six legs, some have none. Some have scales, some have feathers, some have horns, some have wings, some are green, some are triangular. There is no point which they have in common. The ordinary man of sense would reply, then, what makes you call them all camels? What do you mean by a camel? How do you know a camel when you see one? Of course, there is a permanent substance of morality, as much as there is a permanent substance of art. To say that is only to say that morality is morality, and that art is art. An ideal art critic would no doubt see the enduring beauty under every school. Equally, an ideal moralist would see the enduring ethic under every code. But practically some of the best Englishmen that ever lived could see nothing but filth and idolatry in the starry piety of the Brahmin. And it is equally true that, practically, the greatest group of artists that the world has ever seen, the giants of the Renaissance, could see nothing but barbarism in the ethereal energy of Gothic. This bias against morality among the modern aesthetes is nothing very much paraded. And yet it is not really a bias against morality. It is a bias against other people's morality. It is generally founded on a very definite moral preference for a certain sort of life, pagan, plausible, humane. The modern aesthete wishes us to believe that he values beauty more than conduct, reads malarm, and drinks absinthe in a tavern. But this is not only his favorite kind of beauty, it is also his favorite kind of conduct. If he really wishes to believe that he cared for beauty only, he ought to go to nothing but Wesleyan school treats, and paint the sunlight in the hair of the Wesleyan babies. 
He ought to read nothing but very eloquent theological sermons by old-fashioned Presbyterian divines. Here the lack of all possible moral sympathy would prove that his interest was purely verbal or pictorial, as it is. In all the books he reads and writes, he clings to the skirts of his own morality and his own immorality. The champion of Lard pour Lard is always denouncing Ruskin for his moralizing. If he were really a champion of Lard pour Lard, he would be always insisting on Ruskin for his style. The doctrine of the distinction between art and morality owes a great part of his success to art and morality being hopelessly mixed up in the persons and performances of its greatest exponents. Of this lucky contradiction, the very incarnation was Whistler. No man ever preached the impersonality of art so well. No man ever preached the impersonality of art so personally. For him, pictures had nothing to do with the problems of character, but for all his fiercest admirers, his character was, as a matter of fact, far more interesting than his pictures. He gloried in standing as an artist, apart from right and wrong. But he succeeded by talking from morning till night about his rights and about his wrongs. His talents were many, his virtues it must be confessed not many, beyond that kindness to tried friends on which many of his biographers insist, but which surely is a quality of all sane men, of pirates and pickpockets, Beyond this, his outstanding virtues limit themselves chiefly to two admirable ones, courage and an abstract love of good work. Yet I fancy he won at last more by those two virtues than by all his talents. A man must be something of a moralist if he is to preach, even if he is to preach on morality. Professor Walter Raleigh, in his In Memoriam James McNeil Whistler, insists truly enough on the strong streak of an eccentric honesty in matters strictly pictorial, which ran through his complex and slightly confused character. He would destroy any of his works rather than leave a careless or inexpressive touch within the limits of the frame. He would begin again a hundred times over rather than attempt by patching to make his work seem better than it was. No one will blame Professor Raleigh, who had to read a sort of funeral oration over Whistler at the opening of the memorial exhibition, if, finding himself in that position, he confined himself mostly to the merits and the stronger qualities of his subject. We should naturally go to some other type of composition for a proper consideration of the weaknesses of Whistler. But these must never be omitted from our view of him. Indeed, the truth is that it was not so much a question of the weakness of Whistler as of the intrinsic and primary weakness of Whistler. He was one of those people who live up to their emotional incomes, who are always taut and tingling with vanity. Hence he had no strength to spare. Hence he had no kindness, no geniality, for geniality is almost definable as strength to spare. He had no godlike carelessness. He never forgot himself. His whole life was, to use his own expression, an arrangement. He went in for the art of living, a miserable trick. In a word, he was a great artist, but emphatically not 
a great man. In this connection, I must differ strongly with Professor Raleigh upon what is, from a superficial literary point of view, one of his most effective points. He compares Whistler's laughter to the laughter of another man, who was a great man, as well as a great artist. His attitude to the public was exactly the attitude taken up by Robert Browning, who suffered as long a period of neglect and mistake in those lines of the ring and the book. Well, British public, ye who like me not, God love you, and will have your proper laugh. At the dark question, laugh it. I'd laugh first. Mr. Whistler, adds Professor Raleigh, always laugh first. The truth is, I believe, that Whistler never laughed at all. There was no laughter in his nature, because there was no thoughtlessness and self-abandonment, no humility. I cannot understand anybody reading the gentle art of making enemies, and thinking that there is any laughter in the wit. His wit is a torture to him. He twists himself into arabesques of verbal felicity. He is full of a fierce carefulness. He is inspired with the complete seriousness of sincere malice. He hurts himself to hurt his opponent. Browning did laugh, because Browning did not care. Browning did not care because Browning was a great man. And when Browning said in brackets to the simple, sensible people who did not like his books, God love you, he was not sneering in the least. He was laughing. That is to say, he meant exactly what he said. There are three distinct classes of great satirists who are also great men. That is to say, three classes of men who can laugh at something without losing their souls. The satirist of the first type is the man who, first of all, enjoys himself, and then enjoys his enemies. In this sense, he loves his enemy, and by a kind of exaggeration of Christianity, he loves his enemy the more, the more he becomes an enemy. He has a sort of overwhelming and aggressive happiness in his assertion of anger. His curse is as human as a benediction. Of this type of satire, the great example is Rabelais. This is the first typical example of satire. The satire which is voluble, which is violent, which is indecent, but which is not malicious. The satire of Whistler was not this. He was never, in any of his controversies, simply happy. The proof of it is that he never talked absolute nonsense. There is a second type of mind which produces satire with the quality of greatness. That is embodied in the satirist whose passions are released and let go by some intolerable sense of wrong. He is maddened by the sense of men being maddened. His tongue becomes an unruly member and testifies against all mankind. Such a man was swift in whom the sevi indignacio was a bitterness to others, because it was a bitterness to himself. Such a satirist, Whistler, was not. He did not laugh, because he was happy, like Rabelais. But neither did he laugh, because he was unhappy, like Swift. The third type of great satire is that in which the satirist is enabled to rise superior to his victim, in the only serious sense which superiority can bear, in that of pitying the sinner and respecting the man, even while he satirizes both. Such an achievement can be found in a thing like Pope's Atticus. 
a poem in which the satirist feels that he is satirizing the weaknesses which belong specially to literary genius. Consequently, he takes pleasure in pointing out his enemy's strength before he points out his weakness. That is perhaps the highest and most honorable form of satire. That is not the satire of Whistler. He is not full of a great sorrow for the wrong done to human nature. For him, the wrong is altogether done to himself. He was not a great personality because he thought so much about himself. And the case is stronger even than that. He was sometimes not even a great artist because he thought so much about art. Any man with a vital knowledge of the human psychology ought to have the most profound suspicion of anybody who claims to be an artist and talks a great deal about art. Art is a right and a human thing, like walking or saying one's prayers. But the moment it begins to be talked about very solemnly, a man may be fairly certain that the thing has come into congestion and a kind of difficulty. The artistic temperament is a disease that afflicts amateurs. It is a disease which arises from men not having sufficient power of expression to utter and get rid of the element of art in their being. It is healthful to every sane man to utter the art within him. It is essential to every sane man to get rid of the art within him at all costs. Artists of a large and wholesome vitality get rid of their art easily as they breathe easily or perspire easily. But in artists of less force, the thing becomes a pressure and produces a definite pain, which is called the artistic temperament. Thus, very great artists are able to be ordinary men, men like Shakespeare or Browning. There are many real tragedies of the artistic temperament, tragedies of vanity or violence or fear. But the great tragedy of the artistic temperament is that it cannot produce any art. Whistler could produce art, and in so far he was a great man. But he could not forget art, and in so far was only a man with the artistic temperament. There can be no stronger manifestation of the man who is really great artist than the fact that he can dismiss the subject of art, that he can upon due occasion wish art at the bottom of the sea. Similarly, we should always be much more inclined to trust a solicitor who did not talk about conveyancing over the nuts and wine. What we really desire of any man conducting any business is that the full force of an ordinary man should be put into that particular study. We do not desire that the full force of that study should be put into an ordinary man. We do not in the least wish that our particular lawsuit should pour its energy into our barrister's games with his children, or rides on his bicycle, or meditations on the morning star. But we do, as a matter of fact, desire that his games with his children and his rides on his bicycle and his meditations on the morning star should pour something of their energy into our lawsuit. We do desire that if he has gained any special lung development from the bicycle or any bright and pleasing metaphors from the morning star, that they should be placed at our disposal in that particular forensic controversy. In a word, we're very glad that he is an ordinary man, since that may help him to be an exceptional lawyer. Whistler never ceased to be an artist. As Mr. Max Beerbohm pointed out in one of his extraordinarily sensible and sincere critiques, Whistler really regarded Whistler as his greatest work of art. The white lock, the single eyeglasses, 
the remarkable hat, these were much dearer to him than any nocturnes or arrangements that he ever threw off. He could throw off the nocturnes, for some mysterious reason he could not throw off the hat. He never threw off from himself that disproportionate accumulation of aestheticism, which is the burden of the amateur. It need hardly be said that this is the real explanation of the thing which has puzzled so many dilettante critics, the problem of the extreme ordinariness of the behavior of so many great geniuses in history. Their behavior was so ordinary that it was not recorded. Hence it was so ordinary that it seemed mysterious. Hence people say that Bacon wrote Shakespeare. The modern artistic temperament cannot understand how a man who could write such lyrics as Shakespeare wrote could be as keen as Shakespeare was on business transactions in a little town in Warwickshire. The explanation is simple enough. It is that Shakespeare had a real lyrical impulse, wrote a real lyric, and so got rid of the impulse and went about his business. Being an artist did not prevent him from being an ordinary man, any more than being a sleeper at night or being a diner at dinner prevented him from being an ordinary man. All the very great teachers and leaders have had this habit of assuming their point of view to be one which was humane and casual, one which would readily appeal to every passing man. If a man is genuinely superior to his fellows, the first thing that he believes is in the equality of man. We can see this, for instance, in that strange and innocent rationality with which Christ addresses any motley crowd that happened to stand about him. What man of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one, would not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which was lost? Or again, what man of you, if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, Will he give him a serpent? This plainness, this almost prosaic comrade, is the note of all very great minds. To very great minds, the things on which men agree are so immeasurably more important than the things on which they differ, that the latter, for all practical purposes, disappear. They have too much in them of an ancient laughter, even to endure, to discuss the difference between the hats of two men who were both born of a woman, or between the subtly varied cultures of the two men who have both to die. The first-rate great man is equal with other men like Shakespeare. The second-rate great man is on his knees to other men like Whitman, and the third-rate great man is superior to other men like Whistler. End of chapter 17